The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. This morning we're going to continue in the book of Hebrews, even though it is the season of Advent and we have in the past done a Christmas series before. We're going to keep trucking through Hebrews and ask the question, maybe what, what does this book have to do with the season of Advent and hoping and waiting? This book is almost abundantly obvious about what it has to do with hope. We have read fairly recently in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, it says, For on the one hand... A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Hebrews is saturated with hope. It's saturated with the hope that we who were far off have been brought near to God through Christ in a much better way than the old covenant and the law could ever do. That has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. We have this hope. But we are in an interesting place in the book of Hebrews as we start the the last chapter, chapter 13, because it is obvious and immediately should strike you as different than what has come before. Different, not disconnected though. This feels like some of the other letters in the New Testament that that we're familiar with, where it's quick commands and exhortations all connected to what's come before. Now, it is, as we often remind ourselves, important to remember the breaks in our chapters and our verses are not something that have been inspired and ordained by God. So what are we coming out of as we get to chapter 13, verse 1, and I would draw your attention to verse 28, verses 28 and 29 of chapter 12 as kind of the heading for where we find ourselves now as the author takes us through. We studied last week and he writes, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. This is where we left off. This is what leads into the first command. Let brotherly love continue. And it's interesting to note that if you just, if you flip through the book of Hebrews, we have yet to come to an exhortation or a command as specific as the ones that we will come to in this passage. It has, it's not that the author of Hebrews hasn't told us to do anything yet. He has, but it has been a lot of this. Pay close attention to the message. Do not neglect. Listen. Do not fall away. Hold fast. Strive to enter his rest. Go on to maturity. Draw near. Don't shrink back. All of these very general commands and exhortations. But today, we get way more specific of what it means to not neglect what it means to not shrink back, what it means to go on to maturity. And all of this is summed up in what verse 28 told us. 
acceptable worship. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. Jesus has made a way for us to enter into the presence of God with boldness and intimacy. This is our hope. What are we supposed to do now? What do we do now? I had a a, a colleague of mine who's the campus minister at at AUM share a uh, testimony, a brief testimony, just this past week. I thought it was... I uh, praise the Lord for it, and I thought it was relevant here. It was a, an international student at, uh, at Auburn University of Montgomery. Second conversation with this guy. The first one, he shared the gospel. Some time went on. They saw each other on campus again, started talking about Christmas, started leading to what Christians believe. Led this guy to say, you know what? After our first conversation, things started stirring inside of me. And now that we're having the second one, I'm ready to put my faith in Christ. From two conversations, he heard the hope of Jesus. Ben, my, my counterpart, told me the very next sentence after this guy's profession of faith was, is there anything like forbidden that I shouldn't do anymore now that I'm a Christian? That is so, I knew it was an international student at that point because that is so un-American. I'm a Christian now. Can I still get away with everything that I've been doing? That's, that's typically where most college students' minds will go. This student knew that this change in status, it was going to bring about a change in obedience. So he was looking, what am I supposed to do now? I have this hope of Christ How now shall I live? The author of Hebrews does not leave us guessing as to what that would look like. There is acceptable worship of God, and then there would be unacceptable worship of God. There is an acceptable way to live with reverence and awe and gratitude, and then there is an unacceptable way. And this is important because he leaves off that phrase with verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. He's going to require all of you and to approach him, to relate to him in a way that is unacceptable is incredibly dangerous. I hope, church, you know this about our church. We are one of the the churches in the area that prioritize the reading and the study of doctrine above many other churches. We do not seek to be relevant in ways that would catch our community's attention, we believe that the word of God is relevant. We don't have to make it relevant. It is God's word. The danger in a church like this is that we would be so caught up in truth and knowledge and never let it go from our heads to our heart that we would follow these things in obedience. It is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that knowledge puffs up. But love is exactly where the author of Hebrews goes to immediately. It should not surprise you. What is acceptable worship? What is acceptable life? Uh, Christian living. And the very first verse says, let brotherly love continue. Should be no surprise that after we have come to Mount Zion, compared to Mount Sinai, 
an earthly mountain that can be and was shaken, it's temporal, it will pass away, to Mount Zion, the eternal, everlasting mountain, that what are we exhorted to do? The only thing that will last for eternity as well. Love. Love. Romans 13, 8 to 10 says this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul writes about it again in Galatians 5. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the Old Covenant is not so different from this because there's, it's a quotation of the Old Covenant, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But instead of all the ritualistic laws and all the ceremonial practices, what we are exhorted to do here is love. Again, just see the consistency quickly. A few passages from Jesus' ministry and the teaching of the apostles, John 15, 12. John 15, 12, where Jesus is teaching, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John 13, 35. Says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 John 4, 7 to 8. Similarly says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The emphasis is clear. We should not be surprised. This is the very first specific exhortation in the book of Hebrews and it is about love. And my argument this morning as we walk through these six verses is that all of these commands are governed by that one idea that a, the Christian life is one of love. There are two, two ways we're going to see that this morning. Number one is love that pleases God. And number two, love that displeases God, which we will see is no love at all. So first, let brotherly love continue. This is as simple as it gets. This is the shortest, the, the shortest verse in this section. Let brotherly love continue. It is straight to the point. It is much harder than it sounds. Let brotherly love continue. Why specifically uh, brotherly love? Because the whole argument of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus has created a new community of faith. Those in your community of faith are your brothers. You have all been born again. You belong to one another. Therefore, let love between one another continue. Why is this harder than it sounds? Hebrews is written to a community that is both Jew and Gentile in a time where both rich and poor are trying to 
uh, exist as a church in, in, a, in a setting where persecution is occurring. All of these things are making it difficult to love one another. It is hard. It is hard to change when these, these Hebrews that were so steeped in Old Testament culture and now things are, are, are different and new people are coming in. But you're saying that I need to love them in the same way that I've been loving these people who are very similar to me. This is a diverse community. This brotherly love has to go beyond my preferences of who I want to hang out with. This brotherly love has to go beyond the people who have the similar, a similar interest as me. It is easy to love those that are like us. It is difficult to love those who are different. To let it continue is an exhort- exhortation that we have to be resolved to do this. One commentator wrote something I think was helpful He said, brotherly love is a tender plant which requires much attention. If it be not watched and watered, it quickly wilts. Maybe think back to when you were first saved and you loved everybody, everybody was your friend. You would have done anything for the people in your congregation. But now 10, 20 years down the line, I'm kind of tired of that person. They really have started to get underneath my skin. The exhortation is to let it continue because it is, it is something that can wilt. How do, we, how do we foster a community built on love for one another? It's not going to be done by focusing on the ways that we annoy each other. It's not going to be focusing on the ways that we're different. It's going to be by focusing on the fact that you are my brothers and sisters. That's why the exhortation here is a reminder that we are all in the family of God. You'll see this again and again, that we are together. What does this love look like? Let brotherly love continue. I think the the next two examples really kind of flush this out for us. Those are examples of hospitality and sympathy. This This is the love that pleases God. It is brotherly love and it is love of strangers, which seems strange. This word, brotherly love, anybody know the city that's called the city of brotherly love? That's a, that's a Greek word, Philadelphia, love of your brother, love of your family. This word, um, hospitality to strangers, this word is also a P-H-I-L word, but it's, it's love of strangers. So love your family, love those that aren't your family. Is anybody left out of this? No. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby, some have entertained angels unaware. This is, a, this is a particularly important verse to understand in the context of Hebrews. As the world was changing around them, persecution was breaking out 
And there were probably brothers and sisters in the community of faith that were still strangers to them that had great need of hospitality. Were they traveling? Did they, did they move? Did they get removed from their community and now they're here? And what are we to do in those situations? To show hospitality. And why is the exhortation written like this? Do not neglect to show hospitality. Because hospitality is hard. It is hard to invite somebody into your house that you do not know. It is hard when the kids have destroyed everything and everything is a mess. And you say, I don't want anybody to see that my life is like this. We all know your life is like this because everybody else's lives are like this too. Hospitality is hard when you burn dinner and you're embarrassed to serve it. Hospitality is hard because it takes preparation and it also takes uh, being um, flexible, flexibility. Hospitality is hard. And when we have all listened to podcasts and watched TV shows that talk about how the stranger you invited in now kills your entire family. <laughs> Maybe we should not listen to as many as those, of those podcasts that make us afraid to show hospitality. First Peter 4 says that hospitality should be done without grumbling. Because sometimes we do hospitality, we are hospitable, but the attitude that we have while we're being hospitable falls woefully short of what the scriptures command. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. When is the last time you had somebody in your house or you hosted them in some way that showed sacrificial love to them? And again, these are strangers. These are not like, let me invite the four people over that I love the most in the world and I'm being hospitable. No, you're just having a good time. <laughs> Hospitality costs you something. It costs you your comfort. What is this phrase for thereby some have entertained angels unawares? We, are, um, we cheated a little bit on this because our uh, Genesis uh, series right before this is, is uh, included this passage, Genesis 18 and 19 of Abraham and Lot. Three men approach Abraham at Mamre, and he invites them in, he cooks them, for them, and, and uh, the whole nine yards. The, what Abraham, and this, this verse confirms it, is that he did not know that these, two, these three men were two angels and the Lord. We understand this. And then the Lord stays behind, has a conversation with Abraham. The two angels go down to this, the, the city of, of Sodom. And Lot, then, Abraham's nephew, shows them hospitality. He takes them in. He takes them in, especially when uh, things go terribly awry and the whole town becomes filled with lust and, and craze to, uh, to uh, sexually assault these men. But both Abraham and Lot show hospitality to those they didn't even realize were angels. And I, I want to I camp out there for just a second. What is the implication of that? Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For, that's our purpose clause. This gives us a motivation to not neglect hospitality. Some have entertained angels unawares. Why would that be our motivation? If you knew that the person that knocked on your door is in need, the person that walked into this church was looking for community, if you knew they were an angel, would you be more or less tempted to invite them into your house? 
Um, if it looked like a real biblical angel, I'd be like, get away from me because you are scary. Uh, but these had the appearance of men. I think just like the community in Hebrews, that they were elevating angels to a status that did not belong to them. That's what this is implying. If you knew how precious angels were, would you be hospitable to them? And let me just ask you a question. Do you realize that angels in Hebrews 1.14 are sent out to serve us, those who would inherit salvation? If angels serve us, they're hospitable to us. What does it mean for you to be hospitable to your neighbor? Another human being created in the image of God, inheriting, receiving salvation through Christ. Christ did not die to redeem angels. He died to redeem man. Now, what does that say about man? How valuable and precious are men and women? It's not that the author of Hebrews said anything wrong here, but I think it's worth thinking about if we would be quick to be hospitable to an angel, how much more quickly should we be hospitable to the human kind? One author says, it is possible that when you sit in church, the person next to you would really be an angel but he or she is something likely even more wonderful. There beside you in the pews is probably a saint of God in light. Across the room are those destined to serve as priests and kings in the very presence of the living God, who are now being prepared for their glorious raiment. To meet an angel might be wonderful, but in the church are those whom angels are sent out to serve and to inherit salvation. Be quick to show hospitality because people are way more valuable than we realize. Jesus makes us question this as well. What if you were to serve an angel? What if you were to serve a human being? What if you were to serve the son of, of God himself? Jesus in Matthew 25, he says, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. Stranger, you welcomed me in. And everybody's like, when did we do that? Jesus' answer is, as you did to the least of these, you did it to me. How? What is our motivation to show hospitality? Because what we do for the least of these is what we do for Christ himself. See Christ in your brother. See Christ in the stranger. The first command is brotherly love, and it calls us rightfully to see fellow believers as our family. The second command is strangerly love. It calls us to rightfully see all people as image bearers of God. And Jesus is mentioned in 25, Matthew 25, of visiting those in prison, leads us to our third type of love. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. There is familial love. There's hospitable love. And here is love of sympathy. Who are these, these ones in prison and why are they in prison? Uh, Hebrews 10, I think it's important to look back at a few verses there to help us understand maybe where he's going with this. He says, to recall the former days 
Hebrews uh, 10, 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It's, it's likely that those in prison that are mentioned here are in prison for the sake of their faith. They crossed the line somewhere in somebody's opinion. They believed something wrongly. They practiced something wrongly. Maybe they were just an easy target. But this is most likely religious persecution. We are called to remember them. Remember them. What does this mean? Probably a couple things. Obviously, probably remember them in your prayers, in your intercessory prayers. Pray for them. Pray for their strength. Pray for their comfort. Pray for their hope to remain steadfast. But it is also to remember them in visitation, in taking care of their families that are not imprisoned. The list could go on in what it means to remember those who are in prison because each situation is going to be different. I think it sums it up in Matthew seven twelve, where Jesus teaches us the golden rule, right? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Whatever you wish, if you were wrongfully imprisoned for your faith, whatever you wish somebody would do for you and your family, that's, that's what it calls us to do, to remember them. And it gives us the reason those in prison, those who are mistreated, to remember them, that last phrase, since you also are in the body. Since you also are in the body. The author of Hebrews is doing everything he can to make sure that we identify with one another. Let brotherly love continue. Remember those who are in prison, since you also are in the body. This language of body probably brings to mind 1 Corinthians 12 for you. And I think there's a, a phrase there in verse 26 that helps us understand. If one member suffers, all suffer together. This, this is... If you stub your toe, your whole body feels it. If there is part of the body that is hurting, hurt with it. Romans 12, 15 says, weep with those who weep. When one member of the body hurts, the rest of the body hurts. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Remember those who are hurting, which calls us what? To be watchful of those who are hurting. Well, we're going to see here the deterrent to the, the love that is, should characterize this new Christian community brought about by Christ. The love that should characterize this community, the number one enemy of it is selfishness, is to be self-focused on your your own life, your own needs. We will see that 
in the last couple of verses. Our world loves this word love, right? We have seen love that pleases God. It is love that is familial. It is love that is hospitable. It is love that is sympathetic. And now we see it's love that is marital. Verse four says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Our, our world loves this word love, but so often we get the definition wrong. So we're gonna use marriage as kind of this hinge of how there's love that pleases God and there's love that displeases God, and we need instruction on how to decipher this. Marriage is the perfect case. He's gonna offer us some guardrails against coming up with a faulty understanding of love. Love that is pleasing to God, love that is displeasing to God, isn't really love at all. God created love and he created marriage. Therefore, it should be held in honor. This, uh, this teaching right here, let marriage be held in honor among all. Again, we have this emphasis on brotherly love. You're a part of the body. Marriage should be held in honor among all. These are teachings for the whole church. Why are we to hold marriage in honor? Well, because honestly, biblically speaking, there's, there's hardly anything more honorable than marriage. Why is it honorable? Well, think, where did it start? It started, God ordained it. This is not something that man created. In his wisdom, immediately after creating the world, God institutes marriage. And not, not just for his own people, but for all people, the husband and the wife relationship is God's gracious blessing to all people everywhere and in all ages. It is God ordained and therefore should be honored. It is God affected and therefore should be honored. What happens in marriage is to become one, two flesh in one flesh union. We are not able to do this ourselves it is a super, supernatural work to join two as one. Jesus actually, he affirmed this during his conversation with uh, the religious leaders in Matthew 19. After reaffirming marriage, he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is affected by God. God has joined them together. And thirdly, marriage should be held in honor because it's, it's God demonstrating husband and wife are the visible illustration of Christ in his church. You probably have been to a wedding before and heard Ephesians 5 read. Marriage should be held in honor. It's worth asking the question, how does our culture think about marriage today? Um, it, is, it is quickly becoming less and less held in honor and, and becoming seen as obsolete in our culture don't have to get married, can have all the benefits of marriage, financial, sexual, relational, without having to be married. I would not say that that is a, a view that holds marriage in very high honor. This exhortation to the, is to the church as a whole, married and unmarried. 
hold marriage in honor. What does this mean if you aren't married? How am I supposed to honor marriage? That means if you're not married, you should not be saying, ah, I don't, I don't ever want to get married. Sounds pretty dumb if you ask me. I like my space. I like my me time. I just don't, it, it just doesn't seem worth it to me. There is a chance that people in this room are called to celibacy, singleness, for the sake of the gospel. Nobody is called to singleness for the sake of selfishness. We cannot talk about marriage like this. We cannot talk about marriage in a negative way to our friends, especially ones who are not married. Is marriage hard? Of course. It'd be hard to live with anybody. That's why those who cohabitate without being married often end up splitting. Because to live with anybody, whether you call them spouse or not, is difficult. But man, is marriage such a good gift. We, speak, we honor marriage by how we speak of it, married and unmarried alike. We celebrate what God has instituted. How do we also honor marriage as unmarried? By fleeing sexual immorality and, and holding in its proper place what God has reserved, the gift of sex for the marital relationship. We honor marriage by keeping sex within marriage? How do we honor marriage if we are married? It's the second part of this verse, by keeping it pure, by keeping the marriage bed undefiled. Marriage bed is a way of talking about sexual relations within a marriage. That should be pretty clear. How do we honor marriage? By keeping it pure. This means... As it says, sexual immorality and adultery have no place in our marriages. This is not what the world defines as sexual immorality these days. Uh, it's hardly anything, honestly. The, the widespread use of pornography in our culture has inoculated people, they, they, are, they don't see it as a sin. People talk freely of sexual immorality and pornography use on a college campus today as if it's no big deal. This is a problem within our marriages and for the unmarried. It's a huge problem. And it comes with a, a grave warning God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Remember God, we just talked about him. He's a consuming fire. And he will judge. That is a future tense verb. Which means we can get away with it for our entire lives. And then come to the end and face his judgment.
If your mind has not thought of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, I hope it does, and we'll read it together. I do not want to skip over this serious warning. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. If this characterizes your life, you must repent. There is no beating around the bush. You must repent. The good news is repentance is available. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of us. But you were washed you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Repentance from sexual immorality and even adultery will be met with forgiveness and grace. That is love that does not please God. It is love that our world will tell us can qualify as love. You no longer love your spouse. You love someone else. Leave them. Follow your heart. The scriptures correct that faulty understanding. And here's another one. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. This is another Philadelphia word. It's actually the love of silver love of money, but it has a prefix on the front that negates it, free from the love of money. If you, if you have a King James Bible, uh, a lot of times this word will just be translated as generically as, as covetousness. Do not covet. Is that true? Yes. It's, a ten, it's one of the Ten Commandments. I do think this is specifically talking about coveting riches. This is the only other time this word is used is in 1 Timothy 3 when talking about qualifications for overseers, that this, this man should not be a lover of money. This is another type of love that displeases God. Keep your life free from the love of money. There are many things that could be said of this Verse, all the ways that covetousness could appear in our lives. Why does he talk about this? Because one of the biggest threats to love, one commentator puts it like this, is an inordinate concern for one's possessions. That concern can supplant care for those in the Christian family and foreigners. If you are so worried about making a certain amount of money, about having a certain kind of car, about having a bigger house, if you are so worried about what you wear, our precious vacations, how, how much more time and thought could we actually give to sacrificial love for others? It is this 
that threatens the love that God calls us to. And sometimes this can just be simply feelings of financial insecurity that keep us so focused on ourselves. We don't have a chance to love others. And this is hard. I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest. I sleep better at night knowing that there is enough money in my bank account. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? I think this comes down to what is our definition of enough? What is your definition of enough? Luke 12 is the parable of the rich fool. It's an interesting parable because this rich man, he has barns, he has storehouses, and they're filled, but he's got more stuff. So what's he saying? We'll tear them down, we'll build bigger ones. And then this verse, then I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But notice this phrase, and I will say, this is future tense. And then his soul is required of him. He doesn't get a chance to build. So we don't know how this ends. Well, we know how it ends, but we don't know what would have happened if it had carried out like he thought it would. I think the story is implying that even if his soul had not been required of him and he built his bigger barns, he would have never said, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Because he's seeking satisfaction in his stuff, but his stuff was never meant to satisfy him. He had to build even bigger ones and even bigger ones and even bigger ones. We hear about this in the news the rich and powerful becoming more rich and more powerful. You say, when is it ever going to be enough? And you say, well, Jacob, I don't have a barn to store anything. I hardly have a closet. This implies keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. What do you have? How does this person know what you have? You don't know what I have. He knows, he knows one thing you have, because he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This means if you are in the community of faith, you can be content with what you have because you have the great promises of the Lord that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And this promise is not just that you have his promise. This promise is that you have the Lord himself. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Can you find contentment in that, in God alone? The emphasis on the Lord never leaving us conversely reminds us that our possessions will. It's really important to remember that, church. Whether through a flood or a fire, or you just lose it, your possessions will leave you. The fleetingness of possessions, the presence of God in our last verse reminds us, why can we be content because we are confident in the Lord's provision. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. 
What can man do to me? Where does this quotation come from? It's Psalm 118, verse 6. It sounds similar to Psalm 121. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. Well, why, why am I content and confident in Him? He's the one who made heaven and earth. So whatever it is that you're worried about, He already owns it. It's his. He's given it to you for a time. Our contentment cannot be found in money. There is nothing secure about our money. Our contentment comes from the presence and the provision of the Lord. There is everything secure in that. We are to be lovers of one another, lovers of strangers and the needy, sympathetic towards them, lovers of our spouses. All of these things please God. We are not to be lovers of money. We are not to be lovers of sexual immorality. These are things the world tries to teach us to love, and honestly, our sinful flesh teaches teach us to love. We are not called to that. It does not honor God. It is not acceptable worship. Here's here's the the truth, church. All of these, aside from some specific wordings, all of these exhortations can be found all over the Bible. I actually hope and pray that you have learned nothing new here this morning. I hope these are all part of your life already. They all just serve as a reminder. Why do we need these reminders? Because we are so prone to forget. So prone to forget. The real work of this passage is not done on this Sunday morning as I'm teaching it. The real work of this passage is done as you walk away and you take account of your own heart and life. How is your love towards one another? When is the last time you showed hospitality in a sacrificial way to care for those who are hurting, to make their needs your needs? How how is your marriage? You want to influence the world for Christ? Let's focus on healthy marriages. And how is your contentment in God? Do you find yourself seeking satisfaction in your stuff? We need help with this. So I want to spend a couple minutes in prayer. We need help with this. This is a supernatural work, but thankfully, the book of Hebrews has just, through the first 12 chapters, told us that God has done a supernatural work for us. We are completely reliant and dependent on him that we obey these commands. Would you pray with me? God, our our hearts, you you designed our hearts to love. We're going to love something. Would you please direct them towards you? You are the only object worth our love. You don't need anything, God. What could we offer to you? that you don't already have. You aren't 
lonely. You aren't poor. You aren't hungry. But those around us are. You have called us to love them. Help us realize that our acceptable worship, love that pleases you, begins mostly with the people around us. God, help us hold loosely our bank accounts and hold closely our spouses. The desires of the world tries to inject into our brains. Would you protect us from those things? The desires of our own sinful hearts that well up inside us and try to lead us astray. Would you kill those temptations inside of us? Christ is the one who loved his brothers faithfully. He is the one who faithfully loved his spouse And we want to be like him. And God, we are so grateful that the ways that we fail find forgiveness in Christ as we repent. There is not a single person in this room, including myself, who has done these things perfectly. Help us be quick to apply these heavenly truths in the book of Hebrews in practical, obedient ways today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.